0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I need a
1: Andrew. I need a really crack guitarist to play that. Oh no, it's like two
0: chords, right? Like, Always. <laughs> <laughs> my
1: my <clears throat> paper is called o- "Activism, Gay Poetry, AIDS in the 1980s," and I gave it last summer in. Maine, and I'm doing it again here in California. And you know what the difference is? Is that I was at the conference in Arno, and everybody who was there was like my age. Well, there were some young people, but a lot of people my age are older who actually remember AIDS. And so it'll have, I'm curious about what it will have if you'll be able to follow anything of what I'm saying. <laughs> You'd have to have the encyclopedic reach of John Dos Passos or Vanessa Place to do justice to just how many different sorts of gay poetry we had in the 1980s. I moved to San Francisco in 1980 at Halloween. I'd been a grad student at a state school in New York with a poetry center that was run by Lewis Simpson who had been one of the original New Poets of England and America guys in the early 60s. It's beyond me to reconstruct the temperature of the avant-garde at SUNY Stony Brook during those years, but in brief, Robert Lowell was God. (laughs) And Jean Stafford, the reclusive, alcoholic, former wife of Lowell, who lived nearby, was, for us, the absolute avatar of humanity in all its complexity. (sighs) Like that chambered Nautilus of Oliver Wendell Holmes, like she had everything. I drove Lowell's station wagon when he was too drunk to drive. That station wagon wound up divided, like a child in custody among his relics. They said it was the very one featured in Skunk Hour. <laughs> <laughs> one afternoon, Willis Simpson was introducing a reader, and he was slipped a note by the secretary one of those pink while you were out slips that we used to use <laughs> when I was a secretary. We'd say while you were out, Tim
0: called.
1: <laughs> <laughs> And we saw Lewis Simpson read this note, and we saw him start to cry. We were all sitting in a tight circle in a small classroom, and he was totally weeping a few feet from me. But I didn't reach out and comfort him, because that would have been too gay. James Wright just died, he said. That was what was in the note. And I didn't know who James Wright was. But Simpson explained blowing his nose in violent chunks, that he was America's greatest poet. You couldn't get the big picture. You couldn't get any picture. Gay identity was like a jukebox that sighed and broke down, whirring back to life when Fonzie kicked it. (laughs) Filaments from Whitman's poem, A Patient Noiseless Spider. I never think of patience, not as a word in a poem. I grew up in a suburb on Long Island, and I always thought that the best place to lose my virginity would be in this one room, Smithtown schoolhouse on Main Street, where Walt Whitman had taught in 1838, and where he had been thrown out for, well, you know, And I did. (laughs) And maybe the young people in this audience tonight have had a different experience. But for me, poetry and sexuality have always been tightly entwined, like that horrid snake thing that Greek doctors used to shake in front of them. (laughs) Does that connection still obtain today between poetry and sexuality? I don't know. I came to San Francisco to a city shaken by the famous series of mind benders that had occurred all pretty much the same time. The kidnapping of Patty Hearst, the Jonestown Massacre, the assassination of Harvey Milk, and the White Knight riots among them. The heroic wave of gay activism had subsided, <laughs> humbled or exhausted after those initiatives. I guess it's true that wherever you go, and whenever you get there, you will always miss the big, really big thing. <laughs> the epic golden age. In San Francisco, pink, teal, and silver was the vibe on the street, different than that which I had left behind in broken and squalid in Manhattan. In a bookstore window in the Castro, I saw... An exquisite square book, The Graces, by Aaron Shuren. His face on the flyer looked exquisite, too. I called him up on the, on the, on the rotary phone, <laughs> and I asked if I could meet him. I must have been high, because he was so gorgeous. It was like calling up an angel. We just had this coffee date thing. Nothing came of it. We were like moving islands tethered on Castro Street, and soon our differences broke the, the smooth surface. I admired Aaron's gay, shaman persona, one I would have loved to emulate, but I couldn't go there. I, liked, I loved San Francisco because it provided a non-ironic space in which this stance was possible. You had Robert Duncan teaching at New College, Filling up twin blackboards with his beautifully willful handwriting with different chalks to make different sorts of points. Boards so gorgeous, his students would photograph them at the end of each class, or they'd draw them painstakingly in the primitive proto sharpies of our day. (laughs) This was the So with Duncan, you had the magic of multiplication. You had Ronald Johnson on Elgin Park, the Phantom of the Opera, (laughs) writing cookbooks, conceptual cookbooks, like Simple Fare, in which no recipe had more than three ingredients. That was the magic of subtraction. Later, he told me that his publisher had vetoed the idea And he had to include recipes with as many as five or six ingredients, because the other one was so extreme. And the publisher said, nobody would buy a book like that. (laughs) Tom Gunn I met at the leather sex fair. blithe as a kite, leaning against a lamppost in characteristic pose. The head of one boot raised against the pole behind him to raise his knee, where keys dangled from his gloved hand. There was Irving Rosenthal, the author of Sleeper, who had torn out the floor of the Victorian living room and dining room that made up his communal house, and he had a garden in it with lawn chairs on a real lawn. Some said chipmunks. Brian Monty told me that a fawn roamed through those rooms. I never saw it. In Buena Vista Park and in the ambush and the ramrod, Michel Foucault was inventing a new kind of sex, or so he claimed when he stood up. And there was a poetry in that, an operatic surrender, an exchange of symbols, an exchange of hours. When I met Robin Blazer, he explained to me that poetry is by its nature hieratic and brought together different orders of discourse. And then came this other part that I didn't understand. But it was all about that poets are priests, that there's a spiritual dimension to our work and a political dimension too, though that wasn't always easy to access. But the shamanic was always there, woven in and out of ordinary life, you priests, Must know where to strike, Robin wrote. It's in the Moth poem. The cost has been high. When all the world is loved by the daemon of mediocrity, you, unpriestly, among hierarchs on fire, burned mouth. Must know why you strike. I felt unpriestly, indeed, next to such colorful characters. Occasionally, the elderly figures of the gay past descended on us. Christopher Isherwood, burly and lithe, like a dummy you would put on your knee, but of course, wise beyond his years, and always interested in the, in the brightly colored. A few weeks ago, Dodie and I watched George Kukor's Rich and Famous 1981, in which two writers, intellectual Sontag-type Jacqueline Bissett and blousy Southern Gothic Candace Bergen, maintain an uneasy friendship over decades of reverses. And now they think of it, it, Rich and Famous is a little bit like Barth Manifesto, isn't it, Doty? (laughs) Except with you and Eileen in in the parts of these two anyhow there's a party for jackie bissett at candy bergen's fabulous venice beach house has anybody seen rich and famous mm. <laughs> mm. <Anyway>. <laughs> 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 this party is to welcome jackie to glamorous la and jackie's like this total at new york like you know intellectual <sighs> now Jodie, i said help me watch this next part that's coming up because Kukor called up all his real-life friends and used them as extras in this scene. I was reading this on IMDB. <laughs> and Chris and Don are supposed to be in it. It's Isherwood's only appearance in a "There he is," Doty said cold, uh, calmly. "You can't miss him. Indeed, you couldn't. He's supposed to be in a, an unnamed guest. But he makes sure, in every shot, that he is looking right at the camera, (laughs) ignoring all the people, anybody talking to him, really hogging the spotlight. So Jackie gets drunk, out of her mind, and the guests are supposed to be politely ignoring her at this party, like moving away, kind of discreet and elegant, going about their business. But Isherwood stands there like Cotton Mather, outraged by her low behavior. (laughs) 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 Who else did I meet in San Francisco? William Burroughs, never out of character. That deep, sneering voice, a crackle out of nowhere, the gun in his pocket, the memorable hand, and the eyes of an old lady. I asked James Purdy to write a blurb for my first book, and he was very chivalrous, though he professed never to have heard the modern usage blurb. (laughs) Oh, you mean an encomium, he corrected (laughs) me, in his apartment under the oversized rotogravure of bare-chested boxers from the ragtime era. Robert Duncan had those magic eyes, one going this way, one going that. One was always staring right through you. His lips would purse up in one corner when you mentioned the name of one who had hurt him. So I felt, in a very real way, connected by transmission all the way back into a previous, more fantastic time, the time of Paul Swan, say, or Hart Crane, or Langston Hughes, or Ramon Navarro, in this way, time seemed to flatten out, dissolve, so that all gay men and women were living more or less on the same Mobius strip of continual desire and renewal. I realize now that this wasn't an extreme entirely positive or healthy development. And that that flattening out might have contributed to my, well, to my initial lack of a politics. Insofar as one believes that at all times, that all times are not only happening right now, but that all of them are marvelous and thrilling, one doesn't exercise the will to change. At the same time, thanks to my new friend, Steve Abbott, I met the determinedly quotidian Steve Benson and David Melnick the language poets, not gay shamans by any means, <laughs> but as gossipy and funny as the boys in the band, meeting them at the cafe floor. We nursed Bloody Marys, watched the boys go by down the street, and I heard about the poets of the Bay Area, who had slept with whom, whose specialty was what. <laughs> Through Though their individual practices were very different, they had both had intimate intercourse with the god of camp. And anyone who has read views of communist China or men in Aida knows that where they walked, the ghost of Ronald Furbank walked with them. (laughs) (laughs) I remembered how Beckett had been the secretary of James Joyce, and I contrived to become the secretary to Harold Norse, the beat poet on Albion Street. I loved that name, Albion Street. If you lived on Albion Street, I would beg to be your secretary. (laughs) (laughs) Harold had at one time been close to Auden and Chester Coleman. He had known James Baldwin, Marlon Brando, and was dictating his memoirs to me while arranging for his letters back and forth to William Carlos Williams to appear. My job seemed primarily to dissuade Harold from going too far in his memoirs. Not too far in any sexual sense. But I wanted him to cut back on the compliments others had given him. (laughs) You have to have a healthy helping of vanity to maintain legend status. Hello, Susan Sontag. But I was afraid that no one would believe Harold's story of a society party in 1954 Venice where the room parted like the Red Sea, and Harold found himself face to face with Krishna Krishnamurti, who told him in a gentle Michael Jackson type of voice, years ago, Madame Blavatsky tried to make me the world healer. It was not I, and I told her so. Now I see, it was you, short, young Jew from Brooklyn. Finally, the world healer has been brought to earth. So, that was one passage I got out of Harold's book. Uh, really? So back and forth, we young gay poets struggled between extremes of the fabulous and the potentially valuable details of everyday life, the quotidian, between Nightwood and Tender, <coughs> tender Buttons, maybe. When at RNO, I was asked to speak on the, the centrality of gay poetry in the 1980s, but due to the plurality of what was gay, I find it difficult to argue the case to you. Yes, I suppose that you had John Ashbery's Vatic, ambiguous, and sonorous poetry, and that was key to the day. Ashbery, James Skyler, Mary Oliver, Adrian Rich won the great prizes in the 1980s. Adrian Rich lived here in the Bay Area, sort of and she was one of the tutuary gods of our tribe, could we see her practice and that of Ashbury as the embodied sides of the same coin? <coughs> it seemed we could. Even the fact that their books had the most memorable titles of any of their peers seemed to hint at a commonality. They liked great titles, though both faltered in later years mm-hmm. I came at a time when narrative so totally dismissed by the avant-garde was trying to reboot itself like a boxer beaten on his back, on the mat the ref counting down and he has to summon up summon strength to jump up and win the title, narrative was coming back armed with the strengths of avant- insights of avant-garde poetry And continental theory. So maybe I cut my own foot off right there, joining up with Bob Gluck, Steve Abbott, and Bruce Boone into a space where, well, it wasn't one thing or another. We wanted to infuse the stories of our lives with the rigors of theoretical discourse. We wanted to bring the body back to writing by any means necessary. And as we employed everything from the lamps of biology to the badlands of porn to get it there, George Bataille was our god. And John Wieners was our other god. Mm -hmm. Because he was so abject, he seemed to have been the wax mask breathed on by Bataille, to make his world into flesh. Asked in 1984 by Raymond Foy about whether he subscribed to a theory of poetics, Wieners replied, I try to write the most embarrassing thing I can think of. (laughs) Well, that's what we did in the new narrative. (laughs) Loring, Bob's boyfriend, said that we were the writers, writers who love too much. (laughs) (laughs) for me the great tragedies of life were then that life was basically too sad to live and maybe that's something all young people feel and like wieners I cried when the stars died and I remember my room on Guerrero Street pioneered uh, uh, plastered with photos and posters and headlines from, oh, I'm sorry, Uh, uh, the headlines of the one-two punch, the one-after-another deaths that turned my world upside down when first Princess Grace was killed, and then Romy (coughs) Schneider died. They were both in early middle age. They were both continental. Each of hideous death. And one afternoon in the fall of 1982, I was still in my 20s, standing up, fucking a guy against that wall with the big faces of Romy and Grace. And him saying, huh, maybe a condom? I can see him peering back at me against the black and white rotogravure of Grace Kelly. Sort of shy, but persistent. What you'd call a power bottom? (laughs) <laughs> his lips pouting in silhouette I'm like a condom why because like we hadn't like, used them since i had been there like a teenager and I just barely remembered what they were because you know his voice dropped to a whisper gay cancer I'd like to say that I had a condom on me but no and I'd like to say that I went to safe sex right away, but no. These were just whispers in the dark. And by the time HIV was identified, they say fully half the guys in San Francisco, half the gay men in San Francisco had been infected. Perhaps 55,000 men in that moment. At that moment, and for years afterwards, it was roughly the same as a death, death sentence. Half. I mean, it was like every other guy that you could see walking down the street. As you walk down the street, and I've often wondered how my one guy was so prescient, begging for a condom at that in that little voice. For we then didn't know, we had no idea how to stay alive or what it was that was pushing us down that cliff. From body, it was a small step to hoping for community. To write for a whole, if limited, community, ourselves, our friends, our lovers. And one or two benighted souls we imagine actually needed us in those hinterlands i forget about the red state and the blue state but you know get the idea we didn't have a red state and blue state back then (laughs) but i pictured that there were some people who needed me to write for them out there in those little little states Shadows of the great liberation movements, black power, second wave feminism, gay freedom, encouraged the little tree of new narrative to grow to in a certain formation like Banzai. Really, every other kind of writing, even the masters like Bozak or Proust or MFK Fisher had written nothing but camp, when you got down to it when we compared their production to ours. I guess we were full of ourselves in the horrid way of the young, but we were in there pitching. Small press traffic offered a 15-week theory workshop with Steve Abbott running it. I mean, our friends, the language poets, all seemed so educated because they knew so much theory and we were quite envious. And Steve was going to teach all of us in 15 weeks, like once a week, what all of them had known for years, because all of them went to Yale. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't remember who was in, it, in the group, but Michael Anderson was in it, Francesca Rosa, Marcia Campbell, uh-huh. and I, we all signed up for it. It was most entertaining. One week, we mastered Julia Kristeva. <laughs> Another week, W.E.B. Dubois. We went through Lacan week, Benjamin, <laughs> Roland Barth, another week, Derrida, another Deleuze and Guattari. It was a like two-for-one week. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah Arendt, Franz Fanon. In some dark corner of my mind, I was thinking that California would make me a star, that Bob and Bruce could propel me and Dodie too into the top ranks. Of international chic, seeing the glory that was Kevin Killian, that had eluded the New York poets I had hastily, briefly encountered in the 70s, like Ted Berrigan, like Allen Ginsberg, people I'd alienated because I was a drunk. I dropped out of the PhD program after writing half of a dissertation about child pornography. In San Francisco, I was continually asked, uh, continually irked. Oh, get this. By the rise to fame of tall, muscular Jack Sharpless, the poet. People were always saying he was the best poet around. His name, that irked me. His name was so romantic. <laughs> Sharpless. Do you know the baritone part, <clears throat> Sharpless? The consul in, in Puccini's Madame Butterfly? I was like, I bet his name isn't Jack Sharpless. Well, this guy was about six and a half feet tall, a leather man and a waiter at a private men's club in the city, a club that catered to the moguls and the corporations, the transnational. The Finnish photographer, Mark Chester, took a photo of Sharpless up against some black-long graffiti 10 feet high, on a fence across a vacant lot on Ringgold Alley, that's at the Market neighborhood. It said, Higher crotch consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> it read, and Sharpless stood tall between Higher and Crotch, where another man would have been dwarfed. He was really tall. The tagger had somehow forgotten how to spell consciousness. Or by the time he got to the end, he was just like kind of tired out. <laughs> so in, in the photo, in the slogan, winds up and swallowed in a, a, a mumble of guesses. It was like, higher, crotch, come. <laughs> <laughs> Let me hold on to this figure, the figure of Jack Sharpless, as an example of gay poetry in the 1980s. For Jack Sharp was subject to all of the the weathers that raged the 80s. He is forgotten today. Though I say that knowing that maybe some of you know his work here or have heard of his name, you might be writing a paper on him right now, (laughs) but probably not. (laughs) But the academic readers who rejected our Spicer biography complained that Spicer was forgotten. And maybe no man or woman is entirely forgotten. But Sharpless was a strange case in that, during his entire life, he was so little known that he never published a single poem in America. People wondered, who was that dude? Between, them, between these people, I'm sorry. But even the people who thought he was the dude had died. Years after his death, Noman Press in Kentucky published a brilliant edition of his collected poems. It's called Presences of Mind. It's like one of those books that everybody would like to have—a book as beautifully printed and edited as this. Maybe, maybe you have this book and just never opened it up. Mm-hmm. Presence is a mind. The collected poems of Jack Sharpless. Like the status of Ozymandias, the statue of Ozymandias, this book remains. We thought of Jack Sharpless as San Francisco's gay Zukovsky, if that isn't redundant. And <laughs> <laughs> his partisans were the partisans of Zukovsky. So if you like Zukovsky, you like Jack Sharpless. Duncan, who revered Zukovsky, proclaimed Jack Sharpless the best poet of his generation. Guy Davenport and Jonathan Williams each have written like an afterword in this book the show, like, you've just read a great book. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was Ronald Johnson edited the book. He and Tom Gunn just love Jack Sharpless. He was like the X guy He was like two years older than I was. He was, like, he was my peer. When he died, I was 37. In England, he was better known. And twice captured an important british prize for best poem of the year they call it the t.s Eliot award mm-hmm. it shocked poetry lovers here and there <laughs> i had an important point to make <laughs> that drew out how san francisco was england's mirror as much as it is japan's or peru's but I do want to keep focused on gay poetry as I know it, as I knew it. And then AIDS came along and brought the curtain down on a glittering world. Foucault denied it existed, AIDS. He claimed it was only American anti sexual hysteria. Edmund White, too, I remember drinking with him at the Mirage, and he was telling us that AIDS would never come to France. It wouldn't dare. (laughs) I was once angry with Ed Dorn and Tom Clark for the mocking cartoon they ran in their magazine Rolling Stock. It was of a beaker filled with red liquid, like blood poured across the names of the winners of the AIDS Awards for Poetic Idiocy. I waged a fatwa against them. (laughs) At least that's what Dale Smith called it. And I would see red, literally, when I thought of how they had hounded Steve to death. But finally I came to see how it could have been anyone's iconoclasm that did them in under the guise of cultural satire, it could have been mine. For at first, there was no way to predict how terrible AIDS was going to be. If I pushed the culprits, Ed Dorn and Tom Clark, closer to their deaths, that's my sin. And yet, it didn't take long to know that this was going to be a war filled with sin on both sides. I do not forget. I do not forgive, I wrote years later in my open letter to the Buffalo-based magazine, Apex of the M. A great wrong has been done, and memory will never be silent. Memory persists in squawking its full head off, trying to make sense of the evil done to innocent sufferers. I'm hysterical today let my hysteria explode inside the great white apex of Ed Dorn's heart. (laughs) (laughs) I was always hoping that my words would carry me away with them, like the figures in the barrel over Niagara Falls, so that the things I saw and did with my own eyes would recede the casual cruelty the malice, the spectacle of me, Kevin, going through the used poetry bins at Green Apple or wherever and just, just being like, oh, when I recognized oh, the books of Steve Abbott, oh, the books that belong to Ron Johnson, the books of Sam D'Alessandro, and all of the beautiful things that came my way via this madness. It's coming on Christmas. It's coming. They're cutting down trees. They're putting up reindeer. And they're singing songs of joy and peace. I wish I had a river I could skate away on. I made my baby cry. That was the song. That was the song that was played at the most AIDS funerals that I went to in San Francisco in the 1980s. It was so peculiar for some reason. Like even Jewish people who don't have Christmas, would, and they died of AIDS, they'd have that song at their funeral. River by Joni Mitchell. Dennis Cooper wrote. AIDS ruined death. And I knew instantly what he meant. I could feel it, for no longer could the deaths of Grace Kelly and Romy Schneider move me in exactly the same way as they had in 1982. I even asked John Wieners, the last time I saw him in Maine, if the death of Princess Diana had devastated him. It's not possible, he said. Might as well take a wagon to the moon. Sarah Showman said that in the future, all of us were going to be judged by the way we had responded to the AIDS crisis. Filmmaker Gordon Stevenson warned the actress and writer Cookie Mueller about what it would be like for her upon her AIDS diagnosis in the 1980s. And Stevenson wrote to her, I think if you told kids that measles was caused by excessive masturbation and were made to wear T-shirts to school that said contaminated on them so that no one would sit near them or play with them, and then you could put them in a hospital ward with other measles patients, To have their swollen glands ripped out, their spots cut off, radiation bombardment, and tons of poison to kill the measles, all the while their parents telling them that it served them right. Masturbation is a sin, they're going to burn to hell, no allowance, no supper for a week, and the doctors telling them that it's the most fatal disease of the century, I think you could produce a large number of measles deaths. But what else? Famously, AIDS ushered in an outpouring of support from straight and gay women. An amazing gesture without reserve, and one almost of old school noblesse oblige, for we were not worthy or so we thought considering that in the past women's health issues had been like number 1000 or something of things to do in the Castro
0: <laughs>
1: and i remember that when aids came in some in the sm community felt paradoxically safer and that they were the prudent ones
0: hmm.
1: since many hm practices don't involve uh, sm practices don't involve the exchange of fluids per se. In fact, safe sex initiatives attempted to popularize SM rituals of waiting, bondage, toys, spanking, to eroticize the outré, to involve and to reify an orgasm based on infinite deferral. And to some extent, such campaigns succeeded Only in relatively recent times did I see what must have been most obvious to others that when I fell in love with Dodie and married her, it wasn't just me learning how to fuck a woman. It was in some complicated way a retreat from AIDS, a retreat from the dangers of gay sex. But what love? is not mixed with fear, I wonder. I knew I couldn't de-gay myself, so we settled on a proviso to our wedding vows that we would continue to go after whomever we wanted. And Dodie's novel, The Letters of Mina Harker, is pretty much the story of our f- lives for the next five or 10 years. I mention all of this these intimate details to help you see how various was the reaction to AIDS, even that part of it that did not recognize the disease? And I spoke of de-gaying. That's the activist Patrick Moore's word for the process by which the market can, as it desires, make an individual figure less homosexual. He has a blistering chapter in his book on the gallerist Andrea Rosen for her allegedly selling Felix Gonzalez Torres as, well, not exactly not a gay figure, but instead as a uh, an artist as universal as Cezanne. Like, it doesn't matter if he's gay or straight. He's Felix. And then there's the de-Aidsing, too, the deaths of her friends were reported as suddenly at his residence. What did James Merrill die of? There was always the technicality that that allowed the prudent to say with truth that Merrill was carried away by a cold in his lungs or whatever, Mm -hmm. any suspicious death. We, the cynical chalked up to AIDS, Brad Davis, To Dennis Wilson to William Holden to John Belushi and you know we were usually right people gave people grew alarmed when their friends lost weight if you had a friend who was like super slim and he had been doing good he always got laid all the time he went to his death That friend went to his death untouched, while those without the virus grew plump, even fat, just because they could. And indeed, a whole movement of boys loving bears grew into being overnight. Who wouldn't want to be fucked by someone free of a killer virus? Day life had always celebrated the imbalance of sexual, man, sexual chemistry, and our lovers began to twist and sway off balance, like broken gyroscopes, like dancers stumbling on the lip of a, of a volcano. There was the sense of a swoony romantic fall that Max, Max Ophuls might have envied. There had always been. There had always been figures of extreme nebula, the crypto gay, like Philip Whalen, like Susan Sontag, like Ashbery, Guy Davenport, John Cage. They weren't out per se, and so, and they could, and they could th- thus command the privileges of both straight and gay worlds. There was this one guy called, his name was Guy, Guy Johnson. Any of you know him? Mm. He was the uh, extremely affected son of Maya Angelou. Well, (laughs) we didn't blame him. Uh, (laughs) He lived in San Francisco, and it was he who was first called the Queen of Denial. Mm. Well, somehow AIDS got back onto these phantoms. Some withered and died, and others, like John Ashbery, were challenged, baited, or inspired to move out of the closet. April Galleons was recognized to be, to many, as Ashbery's AIDS poem. I'll read a little bit from uh, A Mood to Quiet Beauty. Some of you might know this one. The evening high was like honey in the room where you left me, and walked to the end of the street, where the sunset abruptly exiled. The wedding cake drawbridge lowered itself to the fragile forget-me-not flower you climbed aboard. In the 1970s, gay poetry had been dominated by the liberation of the body. but the excesses of the body were hardened as though by fiat, were banished as though by fiat when AIDS came to haunt us. Throughout the 1980s, we in the new narrative saw ourselves as the last bastion of sexuality, which wasn't far from true, but it was a romantic notion. And you know the bit about print the legend? You know that saying? When the facts and... Interfere with the legend, go with the legend. But too much of gay poetry. But for much of gay poetry, the body was blamed for the disease. The rectum had shown itself a grave. It was a time when the spurt then when the sport returned and when language took on the materiality that had once been the body's province. And so it was. Printer must have gone out of ink, and so it was our insistence on sex and on narrative. <laughs> In our ex- insistence on sex and on narrative, we were lonely. When Act Up came, it was like on a, it was a wave of great pent-up sexual energy and too long denied, and as many. Ad, um, activists will recall, it was perhaps the sexiest time of our lives. A few months back, a young poet asked me how it was that people were still talking about new narrative, for it had no coherent program, he said, and nobody could figure out what it is, and if you ask any one of us what it is, we all have a different story. Before I could think of a reply, he announced he had solved the mystery. It was because so many of you died, he he, uh, he said, with the bell-ringing glare of one who has made it all come hap- happening. Like, on the back of your book, because on the back of my book, Argento Series, is kind of a timeline of different things that have happened to me, including the deaths of, uh, of Kathy Acker, of, Sam, of uh, Steve Abbott, of Sam D'Alessandro, and so forth. Bob Flanagan died of cystic fibrosis. Lawrence Braithwaite of suicide. It was a spectacular record of human destruction. (sighs) Michael, he said, told us about the Italian futurists and all of them died, but they all died of one thing. You guys were all over the map. I told him that maybe I have survivor's guilt. He said, Paul and Ringo do. (laughs) Jack Sharpless was bullied in high school A skinny string bean trying to be Trying to sit quietly on the school bus And hope nobody noticed him But at Lynn Township High School in LaGrange, Illinois In the mid-60s He got the shit knocked out of him on a regular basis He wrote poetry And he acted in school plays Like they had the sound of music And he was in it He had a curse on him, or so it seemed, for all the men in his family died young. His father died when Jack was 14, and his two brothers, one was a government worker in D.C., who died quietly at his desk like Bartleby. He just laid down his head and died. And the other brother, Miles, became a race driver and blew up on the track in a hydro-powered supercar. <laughs> By the time Jack was 21, there was only him, a sister, and his mother. It was strange because I was th- wanted to know more about Jack Sharpless and I, I wrote it on Facebook. Does anybody know it? Jack Sharpless? And I got so many replies, it was great. People from out of his grade school, his high school wrote to uh-huh. me and said, I've- I haven't thought about him in 30 years. So that's where I'm taking this kind of potted biography from. Facebook. (laughs) It had once been a house covered with big men. Now there was just the three of them. He went everywhere with a pen and a black notebook a few inches square. That pen was his sixth digit, a school friend told me. He couldn't seem to break the habit of writing, even on the school bus, even where it was dangerous, different, where it could get your ass kicked. Fag, what are you writing? It was the suburban trap. The sound of music is great in a way, but it wasn't exactly Mm avant-garde. Chicago's nearby, but when you're a teen, it might as well be Mars. When Sharpless was 19, he joined the Living Theater's production of Frankenstein when it toured Chicago. Only as an extra, but he was nude. Well, he was covered with stage blood. He took jobs in bookstores and restaurants, (coughs) saved money, blew it all to spend months in Greece and Italy. From Greece, he brought back a fringed shepherd's vest, leather on the outside. Long white hair like a llama's cascading next to his skin. In Chicago, the bath houses reached all the way up Clark Avenue like a fist in the air. He started making friends, brought some home to the apartment he shared with a straight buddy. Sometimes he brought home the non human, a great Dane called Tanya, a condor called Rastus. <laughs> when fucked out men had left these pets behind in the bathhouses, and the roommate adopted all the animals every time he had a cup of coffee he had to have it in a different cup that was one of his things by 1978 he took off for the party scene in San Francisco where Robert Mapplethorpe was recording for drummer Odd sex scene, with as many intellectuals gathered around a common urinal, like horses drinking. Ron Johnson had named the leather bar on Folsom Street. He, the author of Rady O's, had stricken out every letter of the sign. It was officially the no-name bar, the gift of erasure. A a sight of nothing, a sight of lightning, in the darkness of which, like Frankenstein's monster, one might come alive. The poem which put Jack Sharpless on the map, I mean, on the tiniest map in the world, (laughs) was called Inroads. I hope that you can read this sometime. It can be described in ways that would make you groan as it made me groan when I heard, like, that won the T.S. Eliot Prize. (laughs) (laughs) For it is a series of brief, haku-like, dramatic monologues spoken by Queen Elizabeth. (laughs) Yes, the old one, the Elizabethan one. (laughs) And they're spoken, like, on every page of a new poem that that marked the half hours of her last night on Earth. It was so utterly Richard Howard on the one hand, but there's a, a prose prologue in which Sharpless contextualizes Elizabeth as a woman who loved display, who loved being with people, one who could not only, one who could not, in fact, be happy unless surrounded by others of all social classes. Unlike any previous monarch, she spent six months a year away from her palace, traveling the breadth of England with vast retinues, moving from place to place in order to show more of herself, her beautiful dresses, her beauty, to those who loved her. In the larger sense, this huge convey of travel proved a boon to the economy. As roads were created for the very purpose of transporting Elizabeth's huge entourage, her hundreds of courtiers, courtiers, all through England, there are roads that never existed before. It was just, I don't know what they were, little pathways or whatever. (laughs) And during her long life, an economy ruined by financial mismanagement became the most secure in Europe. She was ruled also by a prophecy that she would die in her own bed. So she avoided it wherever possible. And in her last months, in severe pain, she was hundreds of miles from London. But she saw somebody's castle and moved in. She put a pillow under the throne, and she slept on the pillow. And she walked the hall at Richmond Palace. Where she walked the halls until her body broke, writes Jack Sharpless. So I'm reading this prologue again. And as I could see in my head, it was coming together the other day. I saw inroads as an allegory for what first was the increased visibility of gay and lesbian people, the years of international activism, and the establishment of a gay poetry, and then followed by a cataclysmic, perhaps possibly preordained, health emergency from which the highest orders of the state turned away in loathing, as, she, as Elizabeth turns away from her own disease. In his own last months on Earth, Sharpless suffered a stroke so severe only his mother could understand him when he talked. But he kept on writing, even when talking exhausted him. The poems of working stiffs were different than the elegant panegyrics that had won him the prize of middle-aged men. In this unfinished sequence, a queer man encounters the mythical cartoon fighter Joe Palooka in a bar, and they compete sexually. These poems are really raunchy, raw. Maybe they embarrassed Ron Johnson when editing... Sharpless's collected poems book. He suppressed them altogether. And later in his life, at the end of his life, he regretted having done that because they were part of Sharpless's body of work. But one could see them completely ruining the impression of Sharpless's main body of work that of a bodiless, polite, elegant word wizard. For these poems, bodily fluids were squirting out like a water balloon party. (laughs) As the 80s wore on, the body disappeared from poetry. I asked John Giorno, well, what were your great poems you wrote in the 80s? And he said, Kevin, I only wrote three poems. But I did my best work. I established the AIDS treatment project. There was the matter of the poem disappearing, of poets with no time to write, from activists, from activism, or a more complex despair. There was Joe Brainerd. There was Leland Hickman, David Melnick. Well, poets who stopped writing at this time. And then there was the poets who, once they had died, their work disappeared from view entirely. For now, their families or their other survivors who hated that work could kill it. You've probably heard of the way his mother and uncle reduced the complete poems of Essex Hemphill to the only ones that they approved of. Four poems he had written when he was 16, praising Jesus. Hmm. The rest, well, they were mistakes on, on Essex's part. No room for homocide, for example. While I wait, I'm the only man who loves me, they call me star because I listen in dreams and wishes, but grief is darker, it is a white dress that covers my body, it is a wig that does not rest gently on my head. When AIDS came along, we reacted in rage, partly because we had just gotten over the mass trauma of American high school. And here was a worse bully, with more ferocious allies like there was the state and there was the church. But this time we weren't going to take it anymore. I take it for granted that all poets and writers, straight or gay, have experienced an emotional alterity a feeling of being different than the others. Indeed, that's a universal experience of being an adolescent. But in our case, there was a social formation, rather like a jack-in-the-box, a leap into political consciousness, then a disaster, which resulted in the brilliant direct actions of the late 80s and early to mid-90s, and poetry lit the way. I'm going to quote from another poem. We step out onto the terrace and the hulk then the buds of the forsythia that hides the trash sprout magically as our approach. I toast it as memorial to dreams as fragile and persistent as a blonde in love. My clothes smell like the smoky bar, but the sweetness of the April airs delicious when I step outside and fill my lungs, leaning my head back like a first-class seat on the shuttle between the rowdy celebration of the great deeds to come and an enormous Irish wake in which the corpses change, but the party goes on forever. There were writers like William Dickey laboring on in neighborhoods of San Francisco, neighborhoods I never went to, but they too were dying of AIDS. We saw right away or soon enough that AIDS was no respecter of talent or otherwise. When I read with Paul Manette whom I admired and respected so much for his activism in terms of his AIDS condition and AIDS education. But as a poet, it was like, if what he is writing is poetry, then I will never be a poet. (laughs) I had this flash that just as being gay was given to the first rate, to the second rate, and then no rates among us. AIDS was also a great leveler. And this led to some of the most confusing reboots of the day. To this day, I'd say that half the readings I give are with poets. And what they read and write, I don't even consider poetry. And vice versa, I'm sure. But we have solidarity. And we were there for each other when the hammer came down, and another hammer is coming down. And you're going to read about it in tomorrow's paper. Thank you. listen so carefully. And, um, you know, if you have any questions or, I don't know if you have any answers, (laughs) just step up and speak. Who
0: was the last poem you read by?
1: That was Tim Lugos. He wrote a poem because people were denying that there was AIDS. And he published this one poem. And it was called And it describes how, like, seven of his friends have died in the last 10 days. And the poem is called Pretty Convincing. (laughs) And that was how it ends. The corpses change, but the party goes on forever. I should have mentioned his name, I guess, yeah. That's just my way of killing him once again. (laughs) Now how to restore that party atmosphere back, Andrew, that you specialize uh, in. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> question? Wow. yeah. What part of your reading was Simon at your feet for? Did you notice the cat at your feet?
1: No. Did anyone else notice
0: what part of your reading the cat was at his feet for?
1: It can't so have, can have, have been to give about. me comfort. They're they're <laughs> not known for that. <laughs> I didn't even notice. Maybe he was shining my shoes, because they're so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kevin, what was the paper that you, you said you would read tomorrow at the end of this moment? The paper? Was there another paper? That you no. But it was going to be my impersonation of Nico in the Velvet Underground singing right. Femme Fatale. <laughs> but without, the, without a guitar, no.
0: You said you There's read a good time. in the paper. Like the
1: next oh, time. the tomorrow's papers? Yeah. This is when you're going to find out another hammer coming to destroy every gay and lesbian person in America. I don't know what it is, but I know the, the right wing is hatching it up right now. <laughs> and it might involve disease. Does that sound paranoid? <laughs> Just no, really. that, like you read, you, you read the news <laughs> and you could see it's happening. Maybe not here in Berkeley. Oh, what am I talking about? <laughs> mm. Sure, it'll start here. <laughs> yeah, maybe I didn't make it clear. It was like you're gonna read it in tomorrow's papers.
0: Did you see the thing they had in the paper? This 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 guy in the south thought his dog was gay, and he had to put to sleep? Oh. <laughs> it was like a sidebar. <laughs> but they didn't put the dog down, right? Like someone. I didn't click it. the thing.
1: I <laughs> he beat it to death with a baseball bat. <laughs> no,
0: no, no. That's the guy with the kid underground. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you, oh, go ahead. I was just wondering, like, it, you know, when you run into younger gay men, like, do they have an interest in that that period? That like, what is there? Do you have a general sense of that?
1: curiosity in, about it or you'd be surprised I mean really ACT UP like, is, is thriving with young you know young boys yeah. and girls who are in it in San Francisco yeah. they're you know very concerned with what's going on they've linked the the ACT UP struggles with the larger you know like Occupy type of woman and like they're doing great work but no it's not every every young person but well that's how I met Eric right Eric's came to me because um now I can't remember why but it, no it was something like that it was a generational type question and uh, Josh Cover, his teacher had put out my Argento series book so he was like he goes Kevin can answer all your questions about what the older gay people <laughs> thought of, and how they're so different than the, the post-gay generation so uh, it was a very illuminating conversation but um uh, I don't know why don't you speak for all your people? <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, how do, we I mean, yeah, do young people react or relate to AIDS? Well,
0: I, um, I've been going to some radical fairy stuff, and I feel like that's a really great place to meet older and get involved in the conversation, at least. Um,
1: I, I think, you know, I mean, I was born in 1984, so... Um, yeah, I think my experiences, my exposure is pretty minimal, so it's great to like go to a few men's gatherings and actually, you know, have some other experiences. Yeah. And we have our own little jokes and stories, <laughs> funny stories too. <laughs> Doom and gloom. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. What about you, Eric? Can you see a big hammer coming down on you t- tomorrow? I I
0: kinda like like the open endedness of the second hammer though. When I, <laughs> when I saw this on YouTube I was like, yeah. Um, the the, the help hammer. i to think
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I especially thank you those of you who like Eric sat through it on YouTube and now he has to see me say it (laughs) again live.